A couple of weeks ago, Josh Block of Nile City Sounds said on this program that only the crazy businesses will survive this time. I think Ryan Martin of WH Ranch Dungarees, a sixth-generation professional sewer and pattern maker, might be among the craziest. Cowboy denim priced high and built to last, Ryan's built a steady business over the past decade, catering to the throngs of ranchers, musicians, and movie stars who, like him, have studied and methodically crafted a reverence for the Wild West that manifests itself in their genes. Ryan and I talk about a lot of denim brands, most of which will be familiar to you, but in the event that you have any questions, reach out to us. We'd clearly love to talk shop. In addition to his high-end WH Ranch line, Ryan's built something else that's pretty special in the realm of workwear. KC Jacks, a line of competitively priced, hard-wearing jeans, t-shirts, and sweatshirts for construction workers. And like WH Ranch, all of it is made in USA. Longtime fans and friends know of my family's origins in Kansas and Missouri. My mother is a native of Kansas City. My parents met and married there. I was born in Newton, Kansas, about an hour south of Salina, the town where Ryan's family originated. The home of H.D. Lee Mercantile the Lee of Lee Jeans. In our friendly banter, you'll notice we get a little lost in the geography. Ryan Martin is the owner of denim-labeled WH Ranch Dungarees, a 2004 graduate of the apparel and textile design program at Kansas State University. Ryan's training prepared him to make the finest pair of couture jeans on the market. Among his many accolades, Colorado Biz Magazine called him one of the top 25 manufacturers in the state of Colorado. WH Ranch has been called one of the best denim labels in the world by The Rake, The Financial Times of London, Gear Patrol, Inc., Heddles, and All Plaid Out. After years of methodically building a following for his handmade denim in Colorado, Martin relocated to his hometown of Kansas City in 2017 with his five children and wife of 14 years. Ryan, welcome to the No First Podcast. Max, it's good to see you. My favorite person in the world. If you haven't met Max, it needs to be on your bucket list. He is the most optimistic person I've ever met. He will pick you up when you are down. You leave the room feeling better about yourself every single time. Having said that, I know we couldn't work together because I think we both have very definitive ideas about our creative ventures. (laughs) And I don't know that there's a lot of compromise. As a bit of context, just recently, we were talking about working together yes. on something, and it was like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you were like, no, that's not something I'm even remotely interested in. It was just a little over the top for me is all. Well, we can circle back to the drawing board. In, in preparation for this today, one of the things that I have been trying to figure out, and I couldn't find it because perhaps, and you'll have to tell us a little bit about your legal troubles as it relates to <laughs> how you've gone through the process of intellectual property and understanding the the world of denim and the way that denim hounds are hyper protective, not only of pattern, but of styling, stitching, everything under the sun. But I remember encountering your products. I do not remember where I first read about them, but it was not called White Horse Ranch Dungarees. It predates your jacket that you made in collaboration with Topo Designs. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you first began to show up? I'd been sewing since I was seven years old. I just had a passion for it. My mom was a fifth generation professional sewer and pattern maker. And as a young boy, she was doing 
couture formal wear out of the house. And so as a young boy, you see this loud machine with something very sharp and she says, don't touch it. So you immediately want to touch it and you're drawn to it. And, you know, God bless her. She let, let me get behind the, the pedal, so to speak, at, at an early age. And I just loved it. And it just clicked. My summers were pretty well-rounded as a kid. I just always loved it. She would kick me out of the house and, and have me go do sewing lessons at this shop in uh, Prairie Village, Kansas, just south of downtown Kansas City called Harper's Fabrics. It had just been around forever. And it was this very dungeness basement, but I, I would have these projects and then I'd do that in the morning and then go play baseball at night. I was a pretty good athlete. And so I feel like I had a pretty well-rounded youth, but I always loved it. I always joke I was probably the only 15-year-old kid in my neighborhood with subscriptions to GQ and Esquire. And obviously that was reinforced with my mom's passions. And my dad was an architect. And when I tell people that, they go, oh, that makes sense. Building things is just yeah. naturally yeah. in your DNA. I think that there's something to that when does it hit you that jeans are close to your heart? Yeah, that's when I was in design school at K-State. It was 2002. And a good friend of mine, Ryan Bruce, who is also in the program, who is actually now a co-host with me on the Eternal Cool YouTube series. At the time, he was in design school too. And he was showing me all these Japanese reproductions. He, he actually studied Japanese, so he was very into that culture. And so he had a lot of fashion magazines from Japan because of that. And they were showing these raw denim jeans with selvage and hidden rivets. It was skull jeans. I remember specifically is, is what he was showing me. How do and you spell that? S-K-U-L-L. Skull jeans. Okay. Yeah. What is that? I had no idea what that was. And this is a time I always tell people jeans are very popular now, but back then people were still wearing chinos from the Gap commercials where they were swing dancing. They weren't anything like they are now. And so they weren't that popular, but there was this segment of the world that was recreating the treasure trove of Americana denim that you couldn't find anywhere here. And the very first pair of selvage denim I bought was a pair of double RL. And, and they were pretty new at the time. I think when they private labeling, that had to be early 2000s, if I'm remembering correctly, the, the brands itself started in 1994, but the private label jeans, I think were early 2000s. So it was a pretty new concept. Right around that time, a very cool collection from Levi came out, which I think is one of the coolest collections they've ever done. It was Levi Red was this sort of crazy designer collection that I think only sold in Bloomingdale's or something like that. And, and they were handmade and the stitching was very accentuated and, and overblown. And it, actually the designer that did the Levi Red went on to do True Religion, but that was a brainchild of it. And and I really latched onto that. They had these great trucker jackets and it was just that sort of overblown style and everything's handmade. No robot makes them, but they were sort of like what I do now. You could tell just by the way they were constructed, there was a very small workshop that was cranking these things. Sure. Out. And, and, and with the red, is that where the like extreme yoking came in with the, yes. Yes. the trucker jacket? And then you saw mm -hmm. that on the back pockets as well. That's you, right. You can see that sort of extreme arch in the back pocketing of the true religion jeans now. Everything to the extreme. The red tabs were 2.5 times bigger than a normal pair. Well, so Everything. let's talk about that. That yeah. seems like it was a natural reflection or an inflection on the Mickey Drexler era gap khakis. This is the opposite of that. Take what you understand the denim silhouette to be, and we're going to take it to a new extreme of stitching, of patterning, a pocket, an accentuation, a detail. And as a result, 
we now have the true religions of the world. There were a number of companies around that time. I remember paper denim and cloth was the first, oh, if yeah, not one of the denim. first yeah. organic cotton denim uh -huh. jeans. And talking about organic cotton became part of the vocabulary. And I think that paper denim... Spoon cotton and open-end cotton. Nobody wait, used those terms before. If you're talking about 2002, yeah. right around that time, there were lots of these kind of upstarts. You know, people had moved past Levi's Lee, Gap, Lucky Brand. They'd moved on to paper denim and cloth. They'd moved mm -hmm. on to APC. I, I think I heard you mention Edwin too. They were a pretty big one. They, they took the Lee Archives contract too and were replicating a lot of that. I'll tell you a funny story. In 2002, actually my sister and Ryan Bruce, who I, I referenced earlier, we went to London for spring break. And his sole mission when he went there, he, just, he had this envelope of cash, <laughs> was, <laughs> was, to, was to buy a pair of LVC jeans because you couldn't find them stateside, really. And we found a shop there that carried them. And so he walked in there with his cash and they were literally hanging from the ceiling. They were just this like holy grail pair. Mm -hmm. and, and they obviously knew that they were very special as well. I, I got a great pair of bell-bottom Levi's there that were not vintage. They were the European Levi, the Levi's jeans, which again, it's like, why do they get all the best stuff? They get all the most trend-setting stuff under the Levi label, and we just get this 90s stonewashed junk. That's no longer the case, is it? That it's was not. It was then, though. 18 years ago, we were talking all the time about how is it possible that they have this and we have this. And it has to do with economies of scale, right? Here, mm -hmm. you need to fill a Kmart. You need, at the time, you needed to fill a Macy's. You needed to fill right. a Bloomingdale's with volume. So they were producing in such high volume, high capacity, because of the perceived need, because of mall culture, because of the way that our, yeah. our country had developed. Yeah. And over there, it was boutique. More or less, there were a number of entities that sold replications on denim, mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. brands that we know and love here in the States, they were not as readily available ever. And now you hear that, you just think, well, how can that be possible? Why would anybody do that? But then I hear stories from my mom in the 60s in Salina, Kansas, and she's like, oh, yeah, I didn't see my first pair of Levi's until the mid-60s. And they it's were true. But the store, I don't know what store it was, they got the first pair of Levi's. And we don't realize how segmented that was. The West Coast, it was Levi's. The middle of the country, it was Lee. And the East Coast, it was Wrangler's. And, and that's really all you had access to. It's wild. It's wild. So Salina, Kansas is the home, the original home of Lee Denim. It is mm -hmm. also where your matriarchal ancestors are from. Your father's not from there, correct? No, he is. Uh, in fact, his dad was sheriff of Saline County, which is where Salina is at. And then he was later a county commissioner. He retired during that. So both sides are from Salina. And Salina in the state of Kansas is on I-70. Mm -hmm. It's about halfway across the state. Is that right? Not quite. It's about a third. It's three hours from the state from line City? between Missouri and Kansas. Yeah. Okay. You're really pushing my geography here today, Max. I, I make well, the genes. I'm not well, sure. you know, I, no, I don't it, have... It, it's central Kansas. Lee began there, correct? It came out of Lee Hardware. So Lee Hardware was in Salina, Kansas, and they made overalls. 
and that was the first they made a bunch of stuff like flour and salt and all you can find these really cool tin canisters if you scour ebay all sorts of just crazy things they made out of the hardware store that was private labeled and uh, i'm struggling to recall what year it was but they decided to make the the union all which was an overall and then their first pair of cowboy pants believe it or not i saw the original salesman brochure when i was at the archives helping them date their products and they referred to it as a waist overall but it was actually the first cowboy pants and it looked like a pair of Levi's. It had the Levi gold wing arcuate on the back and a buckle back. And uh, of course they were, they had some issues with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Um, no, it, started, it started out of the hardware store and became so popular that, that they were selling it to other stores throughout the country. And actually a good friend of ours, her grandfather was the one that, that ran the hardware. So his, his partner was H.T. Lee. And that house is still on Iron Street in Salina, untouched. And one year, in fact, I'll have to give a shout out to my sister. One year for my birthday, she went out to Salina and went into the basement. There were no jeans, but she found some incredible mint condition memorabilia from back in the day that I have in my studio here. Wow. Yeah, a preserved piece of history is to go out there. What would H.D. Lee say today about what's happened to the Lee brand? I think he'd be rolling over in his grave. First of all, it's not in Kansas City anymore. Uh, It's not even in Kansas. They shuttered the Kansas City office, moved it out to Greensboro, gutted it. Everyone that was there lost their jobs, save for a few people. It's just, it's unrecognizable from its early years. And I think the problem is that the brand itself prided themselves on being the brand of innovation. So they came out with a zipper fly on a pair of jeans. They were the first. They were the first. They did the X bar tack on the the pockets to reinforce because the the exposed rivets were scratching saddles on the early Levi's. So they were always innovating these problems. But when your identity is innovation and you're trying to reinvent the wheel every time, you're going to have a lot more misses than hits. And I think they pigeonholed themselves into that mentality as opposed to just making a really good pair of jeans. In the 50s, it was a 101, and it didn't change much at all, and they just sold the crap out of it. And I'll tell you, I can attest to that. My best-selling style is the first one I came out with almost 10 years ago, and I haven't changed a damn thing on it. It comes down to innovating to the point of iconic status, correct? The triple stitch on an L.L. Bean boot. As you said, the X-bar tack on a pair of Lee jeans. If you do it and it's successful, Stick with it. Mission accomplished. And continue to innovate, but offer your greatest hits. Every collection. Well, so let's talk about you. What was the first thing you did after college as it relates to clothes once you graduated from K-State? The first thing I I actually did, I made myself a pair of jeans, but I was actually pretty burnt out from the whole thing. I had gotten an interview with Gear for Sport out here in Kansas City who did all the collegiate sweatshirts for, for pretty much any major college bookstore. And um, I, th- I thought, man, I'm going to wow them. I'm going to do a retro style stripe on the sleeve t-shirt with all the old big eight logos and they'd be distressed. And so I came up with this whole, this whole line and, and took it in there and met with this guy and we're talking and he's asking me questions and he's looking at my portfolio and he goes, who do you think's doing a really good job out there right now? And I said, well, I think Diesel's actually doing a really good job. 
I've been to their flagship in the UK and they've just got some really amazing stuff there and they seem to have their clientele really figured out. It's really cutting edge. I named a few others and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's British, this guy. And, and he leans back in his chair, unamused by what I said. And he goes, the answer was Lee Jeans. <laughs> and at that point in my life, I was not impressed with Lee Jeans and I didn't have my love for the back catalog like I do now. Gear for Sport had just acquired Champion at that time. And so the line I designed was for Champion. I thought, let's go back to the archives. I think it'd be pretty cool to do a retro label under Champion because more people know that than Gear for Sport. And there's a heritage there and there's a history there. And he was not impressed at all. And he looked at it and he thumbed through it. He's just like, oh, this is, they wouldn't do this. And Champion is just a cheap brand. It's nothing. <laughs> it's no good. I just thought, oh, okay. I, I guess I missed the mark there. I thought it was okay. The next year I'm reading a magazine and I see in the back of it, they're interviewing the creative director of champion and he verbatim is describing this line they are about to come out with which was exactly what i pitched to him and i was just fit to be tied and they always tell you in design school don't leave your portfolio behind they'll just steal it they can steal your intellectual property at any time so i was pretty much over that whole scene and gear for sports stole my idea and I was done with, with that design at that point. My wife and I packed up and moved to Colorado. When did you make a pair of jeans? <laughs> in 2004, I made my first pair of jeans in our tiny apartment in Colorado. And they were absolutely atrocious. Were you in Loveland? No, we were actually in Fort Collins at that point, a tiny little apartment. We'd just gotten into town. And What took you to Fort Collins? What was it about Fort Collins? Her sister lived uh, in the town just south in Loveland. And we just really liked Fort Collins, which was five miles north. What machine were you using at the time to make your jeans? I was using a crappy little home sew Bernina that my mom had given me, and I could barely get these things stitched together. All plastic, junky parts. I kept breaking needles. I couldn't get anything done. Yeah. Where were you sourcing your denim from at that time? I had, that's a good question. I found somebody online, and I can't recall who, and I'd gotten some in-roll yardage and this was back before we had left for Colorado when we graduated and maybe I had 30 yards or something like that and, uh, and trucked it out there with me. And I was using that. It was junk. How many yards go into a pair of your jeans? Three and a half yards. Three and a half yards. That first pair, was it based on the double RL? Max, I don't know what it was based off of. It was based off of machinations in my head. I, I look at them and I just, I don't even know what I was doing back then. I was just, I was trying to be too different with things and they were just terrible. I found them a few years ago and burned them. I mean, they're just awful. <laughs> I don't want anyone ever seeing them. They're so what, bad. What do, so they, bad. what do they say about the artists? Keep your second, burn your first, right? Yeah, per, yeah, exactly. It was bad. So what were the names? Walk me through the different Okay, names. let's go through the names, yeah. So it originally started with me making lightweight ties and duck cloth ties under the name White Horse Trading Company. My wife was like, oh, these are cool. You should throw these on Etsy. And I said, what the hell is Etsy? And, and don't laugh. People are probably laughing right now, but it wasn't that popular back then. It was still pretty no, cool. But it yeah. was, this is probably late 2010 when I was doing this. And then I started using pendleton blankets that i was finding and making ties out of them and that's when i really got noticed with that went out to capsule in new york july 2011 that's where i met jed mark from topo and that's how the collaboration started actually and come to find out jed and i lived 10 miles from each other in colorado took us flying 2,000 miles away to meet each other 
we did that jacket collaboration and that was a huge success. And I'd always wanted to do the jeans and I thought I've got some eyeballs on me. I just set up an Instagram page at Jed's urging. I sold all my best cowboy boots to get the money for the raw materials, which I could now get because I was introduced to sources that would sell it to me for sample yardage or whatever it was. And I called YKK in Kentucky and begged my way into an account with them. Is it the zipper company? Rivets, yeah, all the hardware, zippers. Oh, yeah. rivets as well? And then the thread company that I was using, though, it was still made in Mount Holly, North Carolina. They're the oldest third manufacturer in the world. And, and I begged my way into an account with their sales representative, and, and he let me <laughs> buy the first cones of thread. And those cones I, of thread, that's that classic golden rod yeah, color that you yes. see in jeans around the world, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, so I had all the ingredients now, which I couldn't get before. And I posted on Instagram, first pair of jeans, and I was off. I, I said I have enough for 10 pair, and I think I sold all 10 in a week. And for me, that somebody would part with their hard-earned money for something I created, that was just awesome and very humbling. Tell me a little bit about the style of your jeans, because they are particular. Yeah. So the first pair I made was a boot fit. And the reason I wanted to do a boot fit was because the first pair of jeans I wanted, I wanted a pair that fit like Dwight Yoakam's and nobody made a selvage boot fit pair of jeans like that. And so that's what I did. That's what I started to create was a, a slim fitting pair of boot fits and nobody was doing that. And then I put this crazy hair on hide patch on the back of it when the pockets were really set far to the side like the old Western jeans that I grew up around, the Lee jeans. And so it was just something different at the time. Was there a purpose to having the pockets set so far off the backside? Yeah, so if you had your tobacco or your wallet in your back pocket, you weren't sitting on it when you were on the saddle. That's why they were set so far to the side. How do you want to talk about Dwight? Because Dwight, Dwight Yoakam. I feel like Dwight is a part of your infamy. He is. I love Dwight Yoakam. He always described my style as... 50% Dwight Yoakam, 50% Ralph Lauren. And I love his music. I love his style. I think it's so original. He's just, he's so cool. And, and I wanted to make jeans that looked like that I couldn't find. I wanted those tall, underslung heels on my cowboy boots. And so I made the first pair and I quipped in a video that they were made to fit like Dwight Yoakam's jeans. A blog called Denim Hunters transcribing the video. The jeans were inspired by Dwight Yoakam and they had a picture of Dwight Yoakam. It was not 24 hours later that I get this long and fairly nasty cease and desist from his lawyers. And I remember being at like a stoplight and I about crapped myself. You've heard from one of your yeah. heroes in a very litigious way. Yes. Um, and, and according to his lawyers, I irreparably damaged my hero's career by daring to associate his name with my jeans. With a pair of jeans. And one of the things that people talk about when they talk about the Dwight Yoakam style is that painted on jean look. He epitomized that style. I would bet my house that that never even came to his attention. He has lawyers on retainer and it was just some intern or paralegal that was scouring the internet and found something. And they just sent us cease and desist just to charge him billables. I, I, I guarantee you he had no idea. Sure. So by the time that had happened, Google alerts were a thing. Anytime someone's name is mentioned anywhere, they can be notified of it relatively easily. He has easily. 25 trademarks on his name. 
So he's That's a little paranoid about stuff like that, to say the least. It's a great name. There, there's only yeah. one Dwight Yoakam. That's right. Okay. I love so, you, Dwight. I still love you. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening. You're still on my bucket list to meet. Uh, favorite Dwight Yoakam song? Oh, boy. I'm going to go with Fast As You. What album is that on? Mm, I think it's on In Time. What you need to do, Max, is you need to look up him singing that on Letterman because he walks out in just this crazy buckskin jacket with fringe that's about 12 inches long. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, it's a great video. How do you define the mindset of Kansas City? We look out for one another. I think there's a sort of chip on our shoulder that Kansas City doesn't get the respect it deserves. I think it's an absolute hidden gem. What was it about the white horse? When I was thinking of a name for the company, I was uh, listening to a Johnny Cash song called Man Comes Around. And in the very beginning of that song, he's reading from the book of Revelation and he references the white horse. And that name just popped out to me. That's so cool. I didn't know that. That's because nobody ever asks me that. (laughs) You've made this pair of jeans that's inspired by Dwight Yoakam. How many styles do you have? 12 and five jackets now. I really started to get into the historical reproductions of the Lee jeans. And so it actually, it gets pretty nerdy pretty fast. And four or five of the styles are the exact same fit but they just vary in historical details, whether it's the rivets or the number of belt loops or little things like that. Uh, Maybe it's the half selvage detail that Lee had done. In reality, there's probably four to five different actual fits that would fit differently on somebody. For instance, there's a pair I made that's a a replica of an early 1940s pair of Lee jeans that that they would have made during uh, rationing where companies weren't allowed to use decorative stitching so it doesn't have anything on the back pocket so it gets very nerdy folks i love the historical details during the same time period that gullwing was screen printed that's right Mm -hmm. and the screen printing is what inspired the evisu hand-painted to paint the one yeah that's right that's right yeah at least did nothing they thought we'll just do nothing after that max is when they came out with the what they call the lazy s which represents the horns on a longhorn And so that's really when the Lee writers came about was post rationing. And that was part of the whole documenting process I did with them was to figure out the definitive timeline from the cowboy pant all the way through the Lee writer. Can you tell me a little bit about Casey Jacks? Yeah. So Casey Jacks is a private label line of E. Edwards workwear. A gentleman here in town, Eric Edwards, he owned four workhorse stores that were very successful here. They were sort of Kansas City institutions. It's just where you go to get your Carhartt and your Wolverine boots. And we had actually met through a friend of a friend. And he was actually trying to develop a line of work jeans for his shops that could compete with Carhartt, but that were made in the USA. So much of Carhartt has been outsourced. And he, along with his customers, were becoming very disillusioned by that fact. And he saw a need in the market and decided to explore it. And it gone down the road with somebody and paid them quite a bit of money to develop jeans. They said they could do it and it was not going so well. And they called me up one day in, in 2017. Uh, this is probably six or eight months after we'd initially met. And he said, Ryan, I just can't do this anymore. His wife had gotten 
uh, ill with cancer. She was halfway through her chemo and doing well, but he wanted to spend more time with her. And meanwhile, he's got this big order of genes just sitting there not getting completed. We met and worked out a deal and basically took over the operation. And we decided too that we could expand it into some low-hanging fruit that there's, it's very difficult to find a 100% cotton heavyweight t-shirt out there on the market. And they were selling a lot of that. A lot of these um, guys on the job site have to wear 100% cotton. They can't have any blends because of OSHA requirements. We identified a need there and uh, we ended up developing sweatshirts and long and short sleeve tees and, and ended up doing these jeans. And then it was incredibly well received when we launched. I, I, we had them in the stores and we decided to launch online after we'd tested it out in the stores and saw if there were any kinks we needed to work out in the design, but it was doing very well. And so we took it to the, to the world. And uh, before we even had the website complete, I'd sent some to somebody I knew at Gear Patrol and they just absolutely loved them. And he called me up and he said, Ryan, we're putting these in our best of 2019, hundred new releases issue. It's going to be out in December, so get your damn website up. And, and so we did, and it was we were white knuckling it. And I'm very proud of it. We're able to use raw Texas cotton, and we knit it from the ground up in LA with custom colors. And it's 100% made in the USA. Even the thread we use is made in the USA. And we're able to be profitable and competitive, and we are less than our imported competitor. How did you do that? Magic Max. It took three months to find the right partner to manufacture it. Even with my experience and knowledge in the industry, there were people that just wouldn't even return your calls or emails. We, We had to find the right person that would do the quantities we needed at the price we needed. And I was lucky enough to find a military contractor out in LA. And so they were obviously extremely well vetted at the government's using them. And we were just, we hit it off and they took the order and, and we did well. I give them credit because they saw the vision and the brand. And I I think they were playing the long game where not everyone's going to do that. So they probably weren't making very much money, if any at all, on the first few orders that we did. But knowing that we had a good product and that they'd take the risk and, and move forward, it's paid off for them as well, I think. Have you made a lot of jeans during COVID? No, stop. I, I can't begin to explain it. I was certain that I, I might be done with WH Ranch. I And, and not that I wouldn't keep making jeans for you and me and Lyle, but it seemed pretty dire. I thought $600 blue jeans are not going to be priority for people. And in fact, I put out messages on, on my Instagram and social media saying, hey, I know everyone's running sales right now. Um, everyone's trying to survive, but put food on your table. Don't worry about me. Take care of what you need to and shop local. And uh, while that message was well received, people also ignored it <laughs> because <laughs> I was slammed and I, I can't explain it. It's nothing I did differently. I I think grace of God is about the only thing I can say about that. What's the future of WH Ranch? I've been doing some exciting collaborations. And while I want to keep making the couture jeans, and I will, I want to try and scale that back and just do more limited pieces in the future. What's the difference between a couture piece and a limited piece? Couture simply means that it's a a high-end garment typically made by one person limited just being, I don't want to make that many of them (laughs) over the course of a year. Because the thing I became really passionate about during the shutdown was reviving American manufacturing and knowing that I could and knowing that I had the right business partners. And so I really wanted to formally set something up where I could reach out to existing companies to help them reshore pieces of their product line to the U.S. and still be competitive, knowing that I had those contacts and those relationships to get it done. 
or uh, maybe a new designer that had an idea and wanted to make it in the U.S. and helping them navigate those waters. Sounds like a consultancy. It is a consultancy. Yes, it is. So WH Ranch could become a domestic manufacturing consultancy? I think that's right, Max. I do want a consulting arm of the company. WH Ranch is my passion project. It is my creative release. I describe it as wearable art. And when I get to the point that I feel like it's just becoming labor, I have to stop and I have to take a day or two and just get my mental bearings so that I'm passionate about it and I'm excited about what I'm making when I get back into the studio. You can answer one or both of these questions. Okay. Why is domestic manufacturing so important to you? And how did you become an expert in domestic sourcing and manufacturing? You know me. I I love this country. I bleed red, white, and blue. I want to see those jobs come back. Operating a sewing machine has become a lost skill. It's become a lost trade. And that's really unfortunate. And we can't continue to outsource these things. Why can't we? I think we just saw it, didn't we? Because what happens when the world shuts down and you put yourself in a very vulnerable position? Can't get anything in, can't take anything out. That's exactly right. It has to be from here. Let me give you a quick anecdote. Prior to the shutdown, we had placed a big order for our tribal and tees for a spring delivery because it's obviously a spring summer t-shirt. A week later, California goes on shutdown and we just parted with a heck of a lot of money and we're going... Oh my gosh, I don't even know if these will get made, if our manufacturer will survive. We're going to be lucky if these show up ever, let alone show up when we need them to in the spring. Guess what? Since our manufacturer was a military contractor, they were deemed essential. We might have lost two weeks, but because of the facility they had set up and because we were had all of our raw materials stateside and in-house, we didn't lose anything in the apparel industry. If you miss a season on delivery because of a pandemic or because there's a strike at the docks, your company's probably done. It doesn't take much for you to go under and something like that can easily do it. For the sake of other brands out there, we've got to be looking at that. You and I both know the infrastructure is there. We just need some people to step up. Ralph, I'm talking to you. Kanye, I'm talking to you. Some people that know the industry to go turn on the lights and make an investment, go in there and almost treat it like a public service or philanthropy. They're going to provide jobs for the future, especially for these small towns to expand that matter. There are places in the Carolinas and Tennessee and Georgia and things like that have these facilities. And frankly, they have those community sewers. In fact, one one really cool project I'm excited about, I'll tease here, is I'm working on a collection with the legendary HBRC Western wear. They've been around since 1897. We're doing a bolero jacket I designed and we're doing it in, in a denim. And we're trying to revive a factory in Houghton, Michigan, north of Detroit to make that collection and then expand that collection as well. Hitting both sides of the coin for me where I can manufacture in the US but also revive a facility. HBRC, famous for their Western shirts, their pearl snaps. And- urban cowboy. All right, Ryan, I think we're at the point in the conversation where it's time to talk about what's in your cookies this week. That's right. We're going to talk about everything that you've read, watched, listened to, checked out on the internet, anything that's in your search history. Tell me a little bit about your favorite cookie. Ooh, my favorite cookie is Kate's. It's a ginger snap cookie. They've got these big chunks of ginger in there that's just like chewing on this candy. And it's this thin... It's almost crispy, but it's also chewy at the same time. I don't know how that works. It's thin, but it's chewy. It's amazing. Good job, Tates. <laughs> what have you read, watched, listened to, checked out, shopped for? 
this is the time of year when I binge on Days of Thunder. Uh, classic Tony Scott film. Top Gun 2. Top Gun on the racetrack, right? It was just absolutely terrific. True story, my cousin's firstborn son is named for Cole Trickle. What have you been shopping for? I have been shopping for actually what I'm wearing today, which is my Navy sweatshirt. You- Go Navy. Yo, Navy. Yeah. Why Annapolis? You know the answer to this, Max. I love all of our armed forces. I love everybody that keeps me safe and allows me to make something as silly as blue jeans for a living. But I do have a particular affinity for the United States Navy because of Lieutenant Pete Mitchell. (laughs) He's, of course, (laughs) referring to the Tom Cruise character from the 1986 classic Top Gun. Okay. And your firstborn son's name? We named our firstborn son Maverick. My wife is actually the one that suggested it. I could not believe she suggested it. And when we got a dog a couple years ago, we obviously had to name him Goose. Maverick and Goose. Whose face would you like to see on the dollar bill? Ralph Lauren's. How about that? Why is that? Because Ralph Lauren has exported the idea and the spirit of America better than any president or diplomat ever could. Ralph Lauren perfectly embodies America because America is a melting pot, but we take other people's culture and make it unique to us. And he did exactly that with style. So while he may make a tweed hunting jacket, it's not exactly what the English would wear. It's the Americanized version of that. It's almost like he curated the best of other cultures. And I feel like that's what America is. We've curated the best of other cultures. What article of clothing is your battle armor? My jeans and cowboy boots. I'm invincible in those. Talk to me about cowboy boots. Who makes your favorite pair right now? Rio Sub Mercedes does. They've done several custom pairs for me. They are actually making me a replica of the Tom Cruise boots from Top Gun, which I'm very excited about. They're one of the oldest in the country, actually. They actually are the ones that make Double RL's Western boots, private label. And they are, of course, Dwight's custom boot maker. So I have some Dwight replica boots that I love and a good old fashioned American company that's been around for over a hundred years. Can't beat that. What song is your favorite background noise? It would be a Calexico song. And I'm going to say fortune teller. It's very soothing. Gets me in the right mindset when I'm sewing the jeans. What movie do you absolutely have to finish when you find it on? Mr. Mom. <laughs> yes! <laughs> the ultimate quarantine movie. If you have not seen Mr. Mom since coronavirus started, run, don't walk yeah. to your streaming service and watch it. It is excellent. What yeah. in Mr. Mom do you identify with most? Keaton really looked a lot like my dad, and they're about <laughs> yeah. the same age. And they had the same glasses when he's wearing the glasses. They had the beard and everything when Keaton has the beard. But I'm sure it was just that growing up with it that movie was on a lot yeah it just reminds me of my youth and i was probably the same age as the boys in that movie at the time but it an absolute classic okay how do you define success ryan martin success for me with jeans was one person willing to part with their hard-earned money for something that i produced it was selling that first pair of jeans. I would have considered myself su- successful if I'd never sold another pair after that. And so that's very specific to jeans. I, I think success is you get up every day and you give it your absolute best. Even in the most menial tasks, that's successful. If you achieved all your goals, how would you feel? 
my goal with the genes was to be recognized as one of the best gene makers in the world, a very lofty goal. And in 2017, I basically achieved that. I won a two-year-long international competition. I was the only American invited in. I was going up against companies with unlimited resources. And I got a little mouthy about it, and they didn't like that. But I told them I was going to beat them, and I was going to beat them with two machines. And one of them was going to be a buttonholer. And I did. So it would have been easy to just pull a Costanza and say, all right, I'm out. You've been real. <laughs> Leave it on a high note. But there's more to do. And, and I can always improve and I can always be better. But I think if this consultancy does what I think it's going to do and I can help other people, that's something to hang my hat on at the end of the day. I admire you immensely for that. Thank you. What is your motto? My motto is keep sawing wood. That's something that I got from Bill Snyder, legendary head football coach, Hall of Fame football coach at Kansas State. That's what he told all his players. You get up every day and you keep sawing the wood. And really what that means is you just keep getting better. You keep moving forward. So every day I get up and I find one area I'm going to improve upon with specifically the genes. And maybe it's not even the genes. Maybe it's, I get up every day, I'm going to find one area to improve upon in being a better husband or a better father or a better son or a better uncle, whatever it may be. But I pick that area every day. I'm going to find that one thing and I'm going to improve upon it. And then I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to do the same thing. I love it. Ryan, before we go, what would you like listeners to leave with following our time together? Max, I hear a lot about the American dream is dead. And you can bleep this out if you want to, but I'm calling bullshit on that because I'm living the American dream. I've got a family that loves me. I have kids that hopefully love me, even if they don't like me all the time. An adoring wife. I was able to start my dream rubbing two pennies together with the help of good people like you and, and everyone else that said, I like that. I'm going to help you. I'm going to promote that. And, uh, and here I am. And I think we take for granted that's not possible in a lot of other countries and a lot of other cultures and structures. And it's unique to America. And it's, uh, you can't just take it for granted. You can't take it for granted. It can go away. So you have to protect it. You have to protect it fiercely. And I do that and I want to help others do that because I feel like I've been given a lot and I was pretty fortunate. So if I can help other people, I'm glad to do that. The through line that I'm hearing is somebody who cares deeply about provisions, the literal meaning of provisions, providing for his family, providing for himself, providing for his customers, providing for the world in meaningful ways, injecting meaning everywhere he can. Among the many things that I admire about you is your deep desire to continue to hone in on what you provide and the manner in which you provide it. Providing a high-end one-of-a-kind, effectively, handmade, 
pant for a customer that can afford it wasn't enough. So you went out and you manufactured with a local purveyor, really wonderfully made, domestically made work pants. And now you're looking at how can I do that in many aspects, not just in one line, but perhaps how can I do that for multiple lines for people from all walks of life? Yeah. Ryan, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Max, it was great talking to you. You too. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ryan Martin. You can find him at whranchdungarees.com. That's whranchdungarees.com. And at kcjacks.com. That's the letter K, the letter C, jacks.com. Tune in next week when my guest will be the brains behind Girl Louie, Sarah Shelton. As I remind you every week in the words of Kansas State University legend Bill Snyder, keep sawing wood. Know first who you are and adorn yourselves accordingly. This is the No First Podcast. The No First Podcast is a production of All Plat Out. Our theme song is That's Right by Pop Villains. Thanks to Marla, Stella, and Ruby. Stay safe, stay healthy, and know first who you are. heard.